0: Two, three, four. Oh. The timing of a drummer.
1: Yours was cleaner.
0: (laughs) As we sit here telling stories Till it's quarter after three The details are so gory But that's how they're supposed to be And this waiter must be wondering If we're ever gonna leave Greetings and salutations. I'm John Kim Fay, and this is Talking at the Diner, the show where musicians and other creative, interesting people tell me their stories at the diner of their choice. I haven't had a duplicate diner yet, and here we are on episode 11. That's right, episode 11, which means we are creeping up on a year of doing this podcast as one of the many uh, tentacles of the JKF Patreon media empire. Speaking of which, if you are already a patron, thank you from the bottom of my heart for your support. As I get ever closer to releasing my long-awaited memoir, the yin and the yang of it all, your support is more important and helpful than ever, because I'm really working hard to be able to share my story, and this includes... Not only getting the hardcover book into existence, which is currently in the trusted hands of a veteran typesetter, by the way, Um, but I also have to dedicate most of this coming summer to recording the audiobook and developing a stage adaptation of the memoir to serve as the touring vehicle once this 350-page tome is out into the world. So please believe me when I tell you that every ounce of your support is very needed and very appreciated. If you dig this podcast and the rest of the content on the old Patreon, please tell a friend, because word of mouth is honestly the single most effective way for any creative work to reach more people. All right, enough of all that. It's time to extol the virtues of today's guest on Talking at the Diner. Ron DiSilvestro. Ran. Ron is uh, one of my very closest friends from the Philadelphia music scene, in part because I have worked with him in several different capacities over the 20-plus years I've known him. Uh, The man does so many things at a high level. A lot of people know him as a go-to record producer. He started out recording in a home studio way back in the, the aughts, when he was the producer-engineer on the 2009 Ike album, Tie the Knot with All That You Got, one of my old band's most loved records. He soon after became the house engineer at Forge Recording in Orland, PA, where he produced a ton of indie and label artists, and would sometimes bring me in as a co-producer for new artists who I would assist with songwriting or vocals or whatever they needed. Ron's production company, RDS Music and Media, is about to take up residence at Studio 4, a studio owned by Philly legend Phil Niccolo, who has worked with artists like the Fugees, Lauren Hill, Urge Overkill, Bon Jovi. He was also the producer of Ike's album, In Real Life. Ron is also one of the area's top drummers. He's an honorary member of my solo project, Those Meddling Kids, We've played together in bands like the Awesome Bros and the Jane Anchor, and he is currently behind the kit in an uber-successful Chris Cornell tribute band, Super Unknown. Jesus Christ, Pose! This introduction is getting way too long at this point, so allow me just to summarize Ron Silvestro, Drummer, producer, recording engineer, mix engineer, mastering engineer... Arranger, professor, production company owner, music school owner, photographer, husband and father, lover of the jerky boys. (laughs) Oh, uh, yes, my dear friend who makes the tasty spaghetti sauce with the good tomatoes from New Jersey. Jersey fresh, as they say. (laughs) Uh, I still got it with my Saul Rosenberg impression. Anywho, without further delay, please enjoy this conversation with Ron Silvestro right now on Talking at the Diner.
1: Everything is on
0: the table are talking at the diner.
1: I hope you're hungry. Oh, I'm hungry. I deliberately did not eat. You've been saving yourself? Yes. Excellent. Because the caloric intake is going to cover <laughs> breakfast and lunch. It's going to be high. <laughs> yeah. Going on the high side. Nice. The Moonlight Diner. Here we are. Alright. Do you seat yourself here? No, no she'll a... be out in a second. Oh. I usually come here as my favorite. Are you a regular? Favorite. Yes, I am. Oh, okay. 14 years of uh, working down the street. Nice. Spend enough time in this place. A lot of uh, ideas were born in this diner, actually. I notice they
0: keep rather large bottles of hot sauce on the counter. Yes, yes, Mm. Red Hots. That's exciting. Yeah. Speaking of the Red Hots, I saw Clint. (laughs) Where at Dobbs? Oh, so how's
1: it been going down at Dobbs? As a
0: when you're so tied in with, like, let's just call it a previous administration it's interesting to kind of go back to a place where you know you're you're not anybody you know what i mean you're just uh and it's cool i mean i i go to lots of places as a civilian (laughs) right right but um it's just a different feeling and it was certainly a different feeling playing it Mm -hmm. as well but it was cool. I mean, right. I love everybody who like, played that show last night and it was super fun. I, I had a blast.
1: What are you gonna get, Rand? Well, as I said, I'm, um, You gotta fill two, uh... Two I'm minutes. going for it today. I'm swinging for the fence. I'm gonna do like a... Swing. I think I'm gonna do a Reuben. Do do really a, good here. Yeah, nice.
0: So how are you feeling? I'm feeling good. You're, uh... I mean, it, it always appears to me like your life is in a whirlwind position <laughs> just because you're mm-hmm. you're constantly like growing and when you started Super Unknown like you were still doing White Limo a mm-hmm. lot too. Yeah. So it be it, it was very interesting how like that like the, the Chris Cornell thing kinda like became like more in focus.
1: Yeah, I mean and you know White Limo had an amazing run. And we actually met Jason, you know, on tour when he was still doing, like, the open, uh, when he was still playing, like, acoustic to open the show. And uh, after a couple beers one night, somewhere in Virginia, I preemptively committed uh, our band, White Limo, to be his rhythm section. I might have threatened him a little bit, too, that I pretty much would cut anyone that tried to uh, get get in line. I heard that you threatened... I well, think uh, Tom, Tom Laskus was talking about that a little bit the other night. Well, it's the same thing yeah. that happened with White Limo. I pretty much decided that they were in it and they, they had no choice in the matter. So. Oh. So, yeah, you're, but, um, you make a good dictator, Ron. Yeah, we know I'm working on
0: it. <laughs> Sometimes you have to take the bull by the horns. And that's one of the things I admire about you is that like you have you've done things that a lot of people only say they're going to do. Let's
1: put it that way. I appreciate that. And um, (laughs) coming from somebody uh, like yourself, you know, um, being self-motivated and um, self-employed, which goes hand in hand with being self-motivated, it's like you have, um, you really don't have any choice in the matter. So currently, it's like, I feel that in the past two years, even prior to the pandemic, all of these little things that I had started to... Put into put into play. Out of nowhere, just kind of all got traction at once. Yeah. So it's you know it's been the um, the byproduct of I have the three month, six month, one year, three year plan per se, and um, it's it's constantly changing because um, there was a time where all I did was you know I was producing records and recording mm-hmm. you know. And I was very happy doing that and playing out once in a while here yeah. and there.
0: So you were the, what do you call it, the, the, the house engineer at Forge starting what year?
1: Oh, so in December, uh, December the 8th will be my 14th year anniversary uh, there. Man, man. My, Yeah, tell me about it. I mean, I my first band I recorded was the band I was in, which was Grind City. Yes. So it was in 2008 where I started. Yeah. and. When I came in, uh, I you know we did our record with you, uh, you know with the tie the knot record where I was mm-hmm. still working you know in my home studio in your house. yeah and that home studio like went on to generate some amazing uh, albums that did very well and yeah. you know kind of got me on the map. So when I uh, started moving into a bigger room at Forge like that, there really wasn't much going on over there. So I started bringing all my clientele there and right. You know, after a while, like I think I was, it's very rare that you see a salaried engineer as a lead engineer out of the studio. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was going very well, but I got to a point where I was bringing in so much business on my own that it was more beneficial for me to go independent rather than be salaried. Because You're like,
0: fuck this shit, yeah.
1: Yeah, with a capital F. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that was like, about eight years ago, where I I decided to go independent, and I remember the first year, like I almost, you know, I did significantly better yeah. as independent. Um, which that's scary when you, you come off of that that stipend that you that you right. depend on every week. Yeah. But um, you know, moving forward, it was like I always wanted my own place, and I started doing these workshops where I was teaching weekend warriors to, um, right, you know maximize the results from their home studios that they spent a lot of money on and have no idea how to use it, yeah. hosting clinics. And uh, that led into the start of uh, the school that I started, which is uh, RDS Music and Media. And um, I feel that that was able, that gave me the ability to kind of like not depend on so many recording sessions because it's a constant grind of, yeah. you know, you have to almost book yourself three months out. That way when you finish your projects that you're currently working on, that the next ones are in place and yeah. that you're able to continue to That's sustain the yourself. the thing that <laughs>
0: always kind of like floors me is, you know, you, I mean, making a, like a, someone's like full-length record project is such an investment of your time, your uh, Emotional capital. No, yeah, no. <laughs> you know, sure. you've worked with a lot of artists who are—they're yes, a handful. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: That has to take take a toll. I've seen you have like multiple sessions with different people on the same day. Like having to like transition from one headspace into another yeah. has to be very, uh, you know, very challenging at times. It's amazing to me, like, to think about how. Far back, you and I go. Yeah, a lot of people who I encounter, uh, you know, who I've only met, you know, recently, like who also know you. They're like, oh, do you know Ron? Like, how did you know? Like, how did you get to <laughs> to work together on this or that? And you know, it's I know that filthy prick. Uh, that's what I'm saying. You have no idea. You have no idea. <laughs> I. It's really cool, you know, because it's what did we meet in like 98 or 99 probably
1: i i might even say 1997 because i moved back to this area from west palm beach right so 96. you were in florida here. because
0: so, you yeah. were in a band yes that had a deal yes talk a little bit about that because that like oh it was um i
1: want the full backstory here well i was um living in west palm beach florida and started playing in this band that actually stole me for another band. So you had moved down there specifically to play music? No, I was actually, I moved down there uh, when I was in high school. I moved in with my my dad to live with my dad. Okay. Went through high school, uh, got out of high school, and actually went through Marine Corps boot camp. Wow. Got out, and I sustained an injury in boot camp that was like a career-ending injury Uh. with my right knee because... David. You were four F, yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> so uh, I spent maybe about a year. Was that very there. devastating to you? I mean, it was. You, you
0: obviously really—you know—nobody goes into the Marines half-assed.
1: Like you got to want it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and ironically, the—I went in for music. I auditioned when I was a junior in high school. Uh, the Marine Corps Band, the, uh, the oh, field wow. unit. uh The yeah. um, not—it's called the Commandant's Own. They're like a marching band that the the silent drill team wow they're based out of 8th and I in Washington so I went and saw them and my band director was like you should go out and audition they, they hold these auditions in different sequences over the next year wow and they only select X amount of people per year to, to make the slot but That's you wild. still have to go through boot camp you have to be a marine per se mm-hmm. so my whole family like my dad my uncles they were in they were in the marines so I decided I'm going to do it and like, you get meritoriously promoted because it's such a prestigious uh, uh, MOS or a job for mm-hmm. the Marine Corps. Right. So, you I mean... MOS? MOS? Uh, military uh, Occupational Specialty. So okay. Basically, your job. Your job, yeah. Nice. And um, so I made uh, all the auditions. I got selected. Went through boot camp. Went through Marine combat training. And that's when I got hurt. Oh. And so I got home and I was like, oh, my guitar trajectory has been changed because, you know, I'm back home in West Palm. Started going to like community college and I was bartending and I got into this band and it was like, you know, the height of the grunge thing when it was happening. So we yeah. we sounded very Pearl Jammy, I guess you would say. Yeah. Um awesome band. What was the name of that band? They were called Black River Circus. Oh, okay. So we ended up uh going out on the road and doing a tour and ended up in um Philadelphia. Uh, after uh, we had an opening stop for Ten Thousand Maniacs at um, Wildwood Convention Center, really? while we
0: we're in Wildwood, um, that's pretty. That's a pretty grungy opening act for uh, Ten Thousand yeah, well, Maniacs. How
1: did that go over? Well, actually, <laughs> we ended up being the headliner because Ten Thousand Maniacs pulled out. Oh, they ended up like disbanding. How fortuitous! Right. <laughs> My father was signed to Capitol Records, and he like he's from Wildwood, New Jersey. So they did this whole like homecoming and story. On me, you know, because uh, you know the D. Sylvester name is pretty well known in yes. in Wildwood. So they had this whole to do about everything. Um, we played the show, and we ended up going in the studio with David Ivory, who coincidentally, I know Dave. Yeah, we we know Dave. I coincidentally uh, teach with him at Monco right now. Yeah. At the community College.
0: Another thing you do. We should probably just have, like, a bullet points thing of, like, what
1: does Ron do? Oh, let's see. (laughs) Make records. I teach uh, production and uh, career counseling, consulting for, you know, ambitious people that are trying to do this in their field. I teach at community college. I teach at a high school once a week. And I tour in Super Unknown. And I rock. I'm a dad. I rock the cradle of love.
0: And you're a dad.
1: I might and have a been husband. accused of rocking the cradle, but uh, <laughs> that was a long time ago. But um, right. I guess, um, you know, we, we were too green at the time with that band, so they put us out on the road. Hence, we came to Philadelphia. We did a demo with David. And uh, we went and cut a record, and things weren't working out with the band, with mm-hmm. us personally. So I, I left, and I moved back up here.
0: And... What wasn't working out personally? Just people everything that you would people, imagine in a band, being assholes, a dysfunctional or? band. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and I, you know, unfortunately, the lead singer he passed years oh, back. Well, that's a shame. He had a, he had a seizure, and uh, there were some unresolved things I would love to say. But I have since then uh, been in touch, and you know, kind of mended some broken uh, bridges with the couple, the remaining members of the band.
0: You know, that's that's we're all like that's you know, cool to hear. Yeah. You know, like there's definitely. Uh, one or two unresolved relationship things that I have with former bandmates and associates that, yeah. um, you know, I think about from time to time. So I think it's cool you did that.
1: Yeah, and same here. And some that will never be remedied because they're just too drastic. But there was nothing. You're yeah. we like in our early twenties, and like, right. there's nothing that was worth. You know, holding any grudges over. So it, it, yeah,
0: it's amazing. You know, like you, you think you're an adult when you're, you know, at that age and you're in your first band. and oh, then no, we're you not know, an adult. We time, know everything, John. I mean, we're not adult yet. Yeah. So
1: like like how could you possibly have been back then? You yeah. Know? Well, but, egos are egos yeah. and testosterone are very strong. Right. In, in your twenties. Right. Yeah. When yeah. I I moved back up here because my dad had just started his booking agency. So, so let's yeah
0: let's talk about your dad cuz like what a amazing I mean you alluded to this the Di Silvestro name in Wildwood, New Jersey is big and your father was kind of a big deal right I mean so let's just cut to the chase he knew Frank
1: yeah he <laughs> he knew a lot of people he was uh he, he knew Frank he uh, met McCartney he, he met a lot of stars so I think growing up I was never really starstruck by a lot of people because it was just part of my upbringing between mm-hmm. when he was a performer um, even when I was a kid like Gladys Knight is like a, gl- a godmother to me she uh, I had an opportunity when I was living in Florida to play drums for her oh in a God, studio dude. and as Jesus. soon as she heard my name she's like get your dad on the phone right now and I remember calling my dad it was a late night session and she's like, I'm looking at your boy right now, I'm seeing you. She hangs up the phone, she looks me dead in the eye, she goes, Boy, I could have been your mom. <laughs> Gladys Knight. Gladys Knight told me she could have been my mother. So Oh um,
0: my god. That and the is story amazing.
1: goes my father was opening for her at the Latin Casino way back in the day in Cherry Hill. Right. And my mother came to the show and was very jealous about the chemistry that she saw between my father and Gladys Knight. Oh, my God. So, um, you know, I, I grew up with it. He had the stage name DeRoma yeah, back Ron in the Roma.
0: Day, Yeah,
1: uh, in which my brother has taken that name because he built it off of the legacy of his booking agency. Yes. So, my dad, uh, he was signed to Capitol, and... You know so, so as a as an artist on Capitol mm-hmm. w- w- what kind of
0: music would you classify that? Is it in Straight the up
1: vein up of just in like imagine like the American counterpart of Tom Jones. Gotcha. That whole bravado
0: sixties yeah. Vegas lounge kind of hundred percent. Yeah.
1: Hundred percent. And you know, he was a showman. He had that electric energy, he was a great singer. Wow and it was he just had that, you know, um, extremely extroverted uh, personality that I did not get.
0: Uh, <laughs> you know. So he, um,
1: he was always very supportive about music, and that's where I started playing drums at three years old, because he would have rehearsals at the house, and I would just get behind the drums, and I couldn't even reach the pedals, but I would just play what I saw the drummer playing, and his music director was like, we're going to get in that kid a drum set today. So they went and bought me my first set when I was three. and Three? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yep. I, and I have some pretty funny pictures that I could show you that are going to gonna worth you. some money for some blackmail. But, um, <laughs> he was, uh, you know, then he went through his ups and downs trying to revive his career as a performer for a long time. Mm-hmm. He dealt with um, some neurological issues from exposure to Agent Orange, he was in Vietnam. Oh my god. Marines. And he settled in as a booking agent. So he went on to form Station Avenue Productions and that's where he started he was actually the first agent to book entertainment at Dover Downs Casino. Really? So he was booking lounge acts and then within two years he was working with Wayne Newton. Gladys Knight Kenny Rogers like all these AAA and that's close
0: to like Dover Air Force Base so maybe like a lot of the military guys would go check out the show absolutely and stop, yeah. I
1: mean they used to book out uh, used to build the stage inside the grandstand that overlooks the racetrack so mm-hmm. they would have you know capacity crowds in that place it's amazing um, and uh, you know he uh, it's, it's weird not weird but ironic that we're bringing him up because today is the 8th year of his passing oh my gosh yeah wow so he um, he was always like very supportive of the music my mother was very pragmatic and I think she saw too much of my dad in me yeah which she was never as supportive <laughs> you know what I mean but a little bit of danger there a little bit she's like I remember calling her and saying mom you know I just we just signed a record deal we're going on tour we're going to do a huge record and cut a video and it's like it's just like what are you going to do about your day job like, <laughs> I, I, I'm a bartender you know like, I what? quit exactly
0: that's and really you know. interesting the dynamic between you know like having your father just I mean being like the, the, the sort of like the template and the blueprint for mm-hmm. you know this is a this is a music this is a career in music yes. and in the music yeah. industry and, you know, you're, you're following in his footsteps in so many ways. And then you have sort of on the other side of it, like, your mother is very kind of concerned yeah. for you. Well, like, fortunately,
1: yeah. I got the balance of both because my dad also gave a great template of what not to do you know, <laughs> in business. Because he, he, he was a hustler, let's just put it that way. Yeah. You know, like the guy is a self-made was a self-made successful person that mm-hmm. had it all, lost it, made it back again many a time. Yeah. My mother was the slow burn where she was a single mom as a secretary with two kids that went on to buy the company that she worked for and become a very successful business uh, and corporate interior designer. Wow. So... That's- very, like, tight well, to the vest so and conservative about, you know, everything. Just. Yes,
0: but both parents, entrepreneurs, essentially. Exactly. You know, and that, I'm sure that that gives you, like, a certain uh, confidence in yourself to be able to do it, and, you know, it's almost like, well, the family business is to be in business
1: for ourselves. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Which it, is awesome, you It's know? the truth, and... Um, Coupled with the fact that, you know, I have no education, so this is all that I, that I this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. This is all I I'll know how to do. So I made it a commitment to, if I'm going to take this risk for myself and, and, you know, and go for the things that I want to do and live the way that I want to, then that's why it was nose to the grind for so many years, even to this day, where it's this mentality of, like, even though there's so much so many good things happening, so much success happening. Yeah. All the hard work is paying off and it's running. Everything that I built is functioning correctly right. and it's, there's safety there. The fear is that it could dry up at any second. So that's the motivating factor every single day that like I ne- I've not taken my foot off the gas. Right. Yeah. You take, so.
0: take the opportunities that make sense because there's a quote that I always used to say From uh, this, did you ever see the movie uh, The Hotel New Hampshire? You familiar with the movie or the book? So it's written by the same person who wrote The World According to Garf. I know that. It was the follow-up. So this is this is a movie that was one was one of those uh, movies that was on like HBO back in the '80s. So like, if you had access to HBO, you watched the movie like. 60 times in like the two months that it was on right and that's I I was just obsessed with it and it was um, who was in so it starred like uh, Beau Bridges I don't know if you remember that yeah. Um, so the character uh, Wallace Shawn he's the guy that says this quote and he says you take every opportunity you're given because one day the opportunities stop (laughs) it's the truth And even as a teenager, like, that stuck with me. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's something that I kind of carry with me. But, yeah, I mean, it's as your friend who's known you for, like, over two decades, it's very cool to kind of see you having reached this place where you are clearly, like, ascending in every avenue that you're taking you know because it's taken it's taken all these years for you to to get to that point Mm -hmm. you know like you were definitely hustling even back in the times that you know we were working with you when I was in Ike and recording at your house Mm -hmm. playing music with you a lot of people don't know that we were in a band together at one point that's right (laughs) I am the illegitimate uh... that I had
1: to fire you from yeah that's right (laughs) I I was anchored by the Jane Anchor. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, as a matter of fact, I just found that CD. Um, oh, you found it? Yep. Good. And uh, there's a mutual friend of ours. It's Steph's former neighbor, and when I first met him, he was like talking to me about all these local bands. He's like, "Have you ever heard of this band called the Jane Anchor?" And I'm like, "Motherfucker!" <laughs> it's like, a matter of is. fact, I have. Yep. That yeah, but uh, it was both like CDs. one of the
0: most uncomfortable. Like so, like I I don't even remember the circumstances. I just think that like. Probably your other commitments were preventing exactly you from, you know, dedicating the time. And and you know, uh, just for context, this was not my band. This like we were both backing up mm-hmm. a friend of ours, yeah. Carol Lafty, who yeah. was the songwriter. And the you know it was her band, and we we played with uh, Joanne Schmidt, who was your friend before she was my friend. Yeah, um, that's you know, crazy. You,
1: you two played in bands together yeah Um, as a matter of fact that band cory was one of the first bands that i got involved with when i moved back from florida okay and scooter was the drummer at that time and they were showcasing up in new york and my father's attorney michael gentlisk was the one that reached out to me and said there's Mikey DeGent. We call him Mikey DeGent. I am Facebook friends with that guy. He's, he's, yeah. he's the best. Nice. He was my father's counsel for years. And, um, Mikey DeGent. When, when I first moved up, he was like, Ronnie, there's this band. Um, I know you just got here, and, but I was just like trying to start new and everything like that. I went up and um, in the van with them It was like a 7 o'clock on a Tuesday. Oh, it's a good slot. Yeah. It was packed. It was all industry. And I watched them play. And I was like, "This band is amazing, and they've got their shit together. This is I could do this." You know, I was coming from more of a hard rock background, but mm-hmm. I really wanted to play for this. So band. this is
0: everyone who eventually was in Stargazer Lily, except yes. for Jim, probably. Right. right.
1: Joanne was playing bass. Mm-hmm. Um, Guitarist and suit and stuff. Steve. It was Steve from yeah. That's right. That's yeah, right. Steve Margolis. Yep. Yeah. So um, after that show, I went had a couple of rehearsals, and my first technical show was a showcase at Studio Four, in which I first met Phil Nicolo. See, all
0: of the that's so cool. How all the threads start somewhere. And where do I tie that thread up. in?
1: Like with I'm making an announcement today regarding. Studio 4 and Phil Niccolo. Oh, that's happening today. That's yeah. yeah. Um, Part of the whole growth thing that's happening right Right. now. So what's the announcement with Phil Niccolo? Well, Phil and I have had, uh, as again, my history started from that first night of meeting him, Mm -hmm. performing all the way through um, when I was in the band Head. And we did our our breakout record with him in mm-hmm. Studio Four, and he produced it. And right around that time is where I I, I taught myself how to record and engineer and all that stuff. Like somewhere around like 1999 is when I started because yeah. the band Head used to be called Tantra yep. had their own recording studio. So I would get done my shift at work, 11 o'clock at night, go in there and start. Plugging in microphones So at first, you're just self-taught as an engineer. 100% self-taught. So um, really got into it, and when we started recording with Phil, I asked him if I could come in early and help him set up because I had taken an interest in this. Wow. So he, by far, has been one of my strongest influences as as a mentor, as a professional, as a business person, the way that he works with artists and the psychology and his technical ability as a producer and as an engineer... All the way to how he runs his business and his business mm-hmm. ethics.
0: I mean, he's sort of like the like the godfather producer from this area. You know, him and his brother Joe, were Joe? Yeah. the Butcher Brothers, mm-hmm. they produced, what, like all those great hip-hop acts from the 90s, so yeah. like the Fugees... Yeah. Uh, who else did they do? Like, they uh, did... Uh, Lauryn Hill. Uh, he did Criss Cross. Chris Cross.
1: <laughs> and then, you know, Phil was a mixer um, that, like, he worked on. Um, Air, I think he's multi-platinum with yeah. uh, Aerosmith, Bon Jovi, mm-hmm. Anthrax. He he produced, recorded and mixed the um, Deshwala album with yes, Counting Cars. Mm-hmm. And a
0: little record... Called in real life by Ike. Yeah, you might have heard it. <laughs> like, heard that one? Yeah, yeah. And pl- well, one of the reasons, like one of the reasons that I was very drawn to Phil and Joe also was their production on Saturation by Urge Overkill. Oh, oh, absolutely. That's like to this day remains one of my favorite guitar rock albums of the
1: '90s. Hundred percent. And he still is like getting. Like, they both get inquiries for business just off of that record alone still. Yeah. So. yeah. That's quite a, a mentor for you to have. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, and, you know, as a tech person, like, he's got a Neve 8038 console. There's only a couple in the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's just known for getting, like, these incredible sounds. And he's not the producer that's going to chop up every little, in, like, every little hit on the drums and quantize it, he's more about getting you so comfortable that you perform in ways that you never thought were possible. Yeah. So that that resonated with me and to this day, I mean, yeah, it's important to, you know, produce things that are, you know, very tight and clean sounding. Sometimes it does require editing, but it should be started with uh, how you make the artist feel, getting them comfortable and just being a good photographer to catch the Best performance of a lifetime. Well, you know, later on, yeah, because
0: so. my recollections of working with him on in real life are well, first of all, he really like went to bat for us to record on analog tape. Yeah, we did the tape. Same. Yeah, you have to have your shit together <laughs> at the time. There was like a worldwide tape shortage or something going on, so like the reels were like ungodly expensive yeah so there was that kind of pressure within the band like you know don't fuck around exactly (laughs) when you say he like Gets the performance out of everybody because he just makes everybody so comfortable. Mm -hmm. He's he's a funny son of a bitch.
1: Oh my god, his stories, (laughs) his (laughs) stories, he's a
0: storyteller. You know, Uh, uh, just you know, and you and I like sort of like inhabit him a lot
1: when we're working together in the studio. Like John, there's so many times I find myself almost like I'm imitating Phil Niekro. Yeah, especially how passive aggressive he gets when like musicians are so excited (laughs) to come in with all these instruments, you know, and. They're like, hey Phil, what, what do you think of this pedal? And look at my guitar, blah blah blah. Should I do this? What you got there? What, what's that? Is that a guitar? Ooh. <laughs> is that are those strings? What's that little box that? What the, does that do? Those are nice strings. Right, no. And he will not break character no, at all. So never. You know, people are just like, Enjoy guys. Thank you. You're welcome. He was like, what's what kind of keyboard is that? Is that a Moog? A mooe. I love mooges. <laughs> And people just don't have the heart or the, the testicular fortitude to correct them. No, you know what I mean? So no, because... It's hilarious. Just watch him roll with it. Oh, but, um, it's the best. So I find myself doing that and, you know, impersonating him often. But he, um, I guess about eight years ago, when I broke out of um, being salaried, which I was talking about before, and I was using different rooms. I was recording out of quarry. Um, studio where's where's Kawari? Kawari is like right over um, right by you uh, over in Jenkintown you know um, when you go over the bridge where the train station is it's like out that way okay Um, and it's an amazing it's like a cottage house with all this like amazing like studio gear and cool vibe Matty Muir has been there for a long time and he was the one that got me in then um, I was like well I've always wanted to record and produce out of Studio 4 because they have the big room and they have the Neve console and they have an SSL in the mix room with like all this amazing outboard gear so that's where I think the first artist I recorded was uh, Pat and Sean Kelly formerly of the Revere and then I um, I did the first and second Black Horse Motel record out of Studio 4 what a great band they were love them so fun And the majority of those records were cut live because that was the energy of the band and we had this big room. So that was like my start of like working in other large format uh, you know rooms with big big desks and being able to walk into any studio and be able to, to be able to run a session effectively and navigate it. Right. And that was, like, the, the, the basis for all of my curriculums that I've developed over the years. Because if you're an independent producer engineer, you have to be able to take a budget that an artist has and maximize it. Like, all right, well, let's go track drums in the big room over at Studio 4. Right and Then we'll do overdubs over quarry, and I'll do all the mixing from home. Because once it's tracked through all this amazing equipment, you don't, you know, you can... Pretty much do post production anywhere mm-hmm. as long as you have good monitoring but yeah it's
0: it's really interesting to me like how that mentality has evolved over the years where you know usually back in the day you would just like get two weeks in one studio and you would do everything there but like you're absolutely right I mean the technology has come so far that once you get the sounds <laughs> yeah
1: all those experiences if I didn't like Kind of get that workflow down and that blueprint down. I would have never been able to launch the curriculum that I have now. Mm -hmm. So it's a preemptive thing that I'm glad that I really stuck to my guns about being diligent about things and constantly trying to learn more and more um, and challenging myself. Otherwise, my production skills and sounds would have stagnated. You know, with the same setup and the same type of situation. And uh, it's allowed me to go all over the country and work out of some of the biggest studios in in the country. Mm -hmm. So... um, Well, it's... And you're finding yourself in, like, all kinds of new
0: situations. Now you do mastering. Mm -hmm. You're currently tasked with mastering (laughs) some
1: of my stuff. Yep. Well, that's not not hard at all. Well,
0: I'm sure it's, like, more it's got to be somewhat of a challenge just because of the way I'm recording
1: you know yeah, yeah but you everything that you do <laughs> I've mixed the stuff that you've recorded and it literally sounds like it was done in a bigger place you would never know so it always comes down to that like the artist or the do-it-yourselfers I try to interface with people that are maybe sending me stuff to mix later down the line before they even record mm-hmm. like All right look let me come over. Let me see your setup, and get you dialed in, maximize everything so when it gets to me, that um, I'm able to do what I can do without working backwards. The school that I that I have, RDS Music and Media, I opened up a 900 square foot um, building that had three rooms in it for music production, recording, instruction, business, industry courses, and within the same building on the other side is where I took my home studio. And moved into a commercial facility. And I've been there for two years, but I committed to this prior to COVID. And when COVID hit, um, I was like, I don't see this ending anytime soon. So I had to figure out a business plan of how I'm going to do these lessons without being in person. Yeah. So I really sat down and I give a huge shout out to Tim Williams because Tim Williams was like... Immediately ahead of the curve with like learning how to do uh, streams, live streams on OBS and Twitch and things like that. So I learned how to use OBS from Tim, and every Thursday night I would do a mixing tutorial. You know, just like pour yourself something to drink, sit down behind your speakers, put some headphones on. I was able to send the audio, it was the actual audio from my. Uh, workstation through the uh, through the broadcast. So if somebody was at their house on the other side, they were getting the full audio of the of the mix. Wow! And if I had not learned how to do that, and then using Zoom in the same capacity, I would have never survived. Because when we opened up in June of 2020, number one, I didn't even have any equipment. Everything was back order. Remember, like everybody, all the stuff that I had for my school. It was like all entry level like interfaces and a computer and some right. speakers. Yeah. But it's exactly the same shit that everybody bought because they were stuck at home. Oh, I'm gonna learn how to record. So it was a magical like intersection for me. It's like, well, the demand is gonna be there. I don't have to depend on a local audience to come in. I can reach anyone from anywhere in the country or the world. So COVID was like this proving ground for new opportunities that even past this. The, the threshold of the pandemic mm-hmm. are still in place. So Circle back to your Phil uh, all right. announcement. This is actually where it comes full circle. So I, I spoke to Phil. I was calling him about his... Uh, he opened a record pressing plan. Like he presses out vinyl now. Which, which I love. Bitch. Yeah. <laughs> he took me out to lunch. I had a session at Studio 4 five years ago. He comes out. he's like, Hey, Ken, what are you doing after this? Uh, nothing. He's like, oh, let's go to lunch. So he went upstairs to the Great American Pub mm-hmm. and he laid out this idea. The place is still there. Yeah, the Great American Pub. Exactly. Still, yeah. And uh, he laid out this whole plan of you know, what he wants to do and the, the need and the demand for it. Mm-hmm. And to see it come to fruition, it's amazing. Like He's been open for eight months, even though it's been years of development. And they're doing so well. But most of his time is occupied there so there's a vacancy now in the B room at Studio 4 which has the SSL and it has mm-hmm. a tracking room that tracking room is where they cut most of uh, Joan Osborne's Relish album yep so it's a paradise of a studio and his partner Will Yip and Joe huge um, producer you know which yeah mm-hmm. he's incredible and we, I have a good relationship with Will I've worked out of there many a time with full records so I know my way around and I basically asked him. I was like, you know, I need a new place. Uh, would you be willing to let me rent out Studio B as my place of business? And he was very excited and happy for me, and would love to do it. Will's very happy that I'm going to be there. So Studio Four is, is my new home. That so is, today I was actually going to put something out on on Facebook about
0: extremely that, exciting, dude.
1: I'm. Uh, what a! I can't wait. It's like a dream come true for me. It's a great deal for him. It's within my, um, my ability for my business plan. Mm-hmm. and I'm going to be able to you know target even like my major label clients through this facility now rather than yeah you know, in my other room. in the other room. I'm also sharing a wall with another uh, production company that. If you've been in there and you felt the bass come through the walls, it's <laughs> a little problematic to make a record. It's you know? the
0: boom coming from the smoke-filled
1: room. Boom. So, as I was saying before, like all these different things that started incrementally, small, have all kind of gotten traction at once, and then you throw like the whole super unknown thing into it and like somebody told us that we would be signed to like this huge tribute band agency and we be touring Mid-Atlantic Coast mm-hmm. I'd be like well that would be cool
0: I didn't well, expect
1: it um, but you know it's I mean, that's I, something I can't turn it down so I'm gonna go to the grind on it so yeah I mean
0: I'm probably the last person that you would think of to be like yeah I'm a fan of a tribute band I mean Soundgarden is very close to my heart. The Caulfields were signed to A&M, which was the same label they were on. I remember getting my free label comp copy of Super Unknown the week it came out. It's awesome. I mean, the, the guys in the band, like we got together the other night, and they told me, Something that I actually never knew. Uh, like we did a label showcase once we were on the label, like out at like the Troubadour or something in LA, and they were like, "Yeah," and the guys from Soundgarden were there. They came up and they were like, "Oh, we love you guys," and this and that. And I was like, "Nobody ever told me that." <laughs> that would have done so much for my self confidence had I known. <laughs> but apparently, for whatever reason, like a lot of a lot of those Seattle guys. Enjoyed us because the other thing they said like, we played this. There's a festival in Seattle every year called Bumbershoot, and um, they were like, Yeah, don't you remember? Jerry Cantrell came up after and he was like, Yeah, I've been like waiting to hear you guys. Blah, blah, blah. I was like, No, it's like, How do I miss all this? Shit? I miss like all the cool stuff, That's but you know. know, but in uh, back to my point, that music and that you know, that band and that. That album specifically, um, it's just got a very close place in my heart. And to hear those songs and, you know, all of that catalog, like, rendered with such uh, precision and love, it's, like, the coolest thing. I mean, obviously, you're great. Jason Reed is, I mean, obviously, that's why you, like, forced the issue with this, because he's a dead, yeah, you know, like, he's
1: a dead ringer and that, that's like, uh, the biggest thing to sometimes. overcome like we like you play a, a new audience mm-hmm. or any time you tell somebody that you're in this you know Chris Cornell chibi thing that does Soundgarden audience like all that it's always met with that that skepticism like yeah yeah Like, yeah. <laughs> like you, may, you have to have brass balls to go out there and do that mm-hmm. and I'm so I never like I don't talk them up I'm like yeah well you know Check it out. Let me know what you think. And you look out in the crowd, and you always see like that first couple rows of like people like the cross arms, cross arms looking at like that. Like this, this better be worth the thirty bucks I just paid for seeing tribute. Yeah, much no joke, dude. And like the moment he opens his mouth, yeah, is one thing, right, right. Thirty dollars—that's a real ticket price. Uh, I, I, I don't try not to think about it or question it. Mm You know, just very appreciative. (laughs) but uh, you watch that reaction from people Mm -hmm. and you know you got them.
0: Wise words. There's no better feeling than winning over the crossed-armed skeptics in the front row. I've had the great pleasure and privilege of um, playing Eddie Vedder to super-unknown lead singer Jason Reed's Chris Cornell on their fantastic rendition of Hunger Strike on a couple of occasions, and it's honestly a tremendous thrill. Especially feeling the thunder of Ron's drums a few feet away from me I just miss volume Ugh. Anyway, if you get the chance, do check out Super Unknown And if you're an up-and-coming music entrepreneur You can learn a lot from Ron DiSilvestro. So keep your eye on this guy I want to thank Ron for meeting up with me at the Moonlight Diner In Glenside, Pennsylvania and I'll be back again next time for another great conversation right here on Talking at the Diner. Talking at-